I'm Kate Daniels. With us to guide us with some critically important insights and information about gender is Dr. Lee Ayrton, an assistant professor of gender and sexuality studies at Queen's University in Toronto and author of the new book, Gender, Your Guide, a gender-friendly primer on what to know, what to say, and what to do in the new gender culture. Dr. Lee Ayrton, good morning. Thank you so greatly for being with us today. Thank you for having me, Kate. I really appreciate your being with us for so many reasons, not the least of which is important education for each and every one of us, because uh, without question, our world is constantly changing, but the whole idea around gender seems to be even more so now, and I think that uh, many of us just don't have all the information and awareness we'd like to have. Therefore, your new book, I think, is bringing us a a great resource in that way, isn't it? Well, I hope so. And that is definitely the goal of the book. It's to invite everyone to come on in and learn some things and join the conversation. So I expect that as a professor in this field that you would you probably saw the need that there was a lack of resources. Was this part of the motivation for the book? It absolutely was. And I'm actually a professor in a faculty of education. So my undergraduate teaching is always with teachers, um, with pre-service teachers, so folks who are coming in to do a Bachelor of Education. And so what I've noticed in about a decade of doing that kind of work is that My students come in and they very much want to create an environment that's welcoming of all students, including in relation to gender identity and gender expression. So what I notice is I have a lot of people coming in and they know this is their responsibility and they're good people, but they just don't really have a clue where to start. So a lot of the material in the book comes from working with my students who come in with not a lot of background knowledge about gender diversity, but a lot of knowledge about how gender has worked in their own lives. And so we begin by kind of excavating that and inviting them to make connections. And that's precisely the approach that I brought to the book. And it is thus such a great resource, not just for educators, of course, in education, it's critical for family, for friends, Mm -hmm. for just really the whole population. And that's exactly what I had in mind. I had a lot of different readers kind of sitting with me as I was writing the book, and I was thinking, okay, so how does this particular tip um, apply to a parent, or how does it apply to a coworker um, of somebody who isn't doing gender in the way that one might expect? So I had all these different audiences in mind, and there's many different ways that the book um, offers its content to those different people. So again, that underscores the value and the importance of this book, Gender, Your Guide. Your guide being perhaps part of the key word here is guiding Mm -hmm. us through this. Just to pick up on the Your Guide aspect, one of the things I tried to do is actually to talk directly to the reader. So there are many places in the book where you are invited to think very um, deeply and reflexively about how gender has worked in your life. So I talk a lot about the big two gender categories and how they become very rigid. And I invite my reader to think about how that rigidity has affected them and then perhaps to extend that reflection and that knowledge to other folks in their lives who may be transgender. So this perhaps may feel unfamiliar to some people. I think, fortunately, we're getting more and more aware. But sometimes we react because we don't know something. And so uh, Mm -hmm. we don't react maybe very brightly. So I think that Mm -hmm. here again, this guide, gender, your guide is going to Mm -hmm. facilitate that, isn't it? 
It is. It has a kind of a like a project in the book that I try to dance is to make it more normalized that people will make mistakes whether it's calling me the wrong pronoun or slipping up once you know what my pronoun is, which in my case is they, them, or saying sort of the wrong or incorrect gendered thing about a person. What I try to do in the book is to say, okay, you will make mistakes because this is something that a lot of people are not used to, sort of not being able to automatically attribute something like a pronoun or not being familiar with gender-neutral pronouns. So you are going to make mistakes, and that's okay. And this is how you make a good mistake. So that's one of the key shifts I'm trying to work with in the book is to move away from this very sort of tense and high stakes and polarized encounter where someone says, oh, well, I'm just going to make a mistake. It's too much of a big deal and say, actually, yes, you will. And that is okay. Here's how you make a good mistake. So what it is is to be open, Mm -hmm. willing to gain more information, willing to adjust our thinking, willing to grow. Of course. And and that is sort of the broad orientation I ask people to take when they make a mistake. And the immediate practical thing I say to do, because the book is, is a prescriptive book, it does tell you what to do. The very prescriptive thing I say to do in the moment, for, for example, if you said the wrong pronoun for me and you remember or you find out, is just to say, oh, sorry, they're talking on the radio. And then move on, cool as a cucumber, as best as you can. Because the more natural and organic and and chill that mistake is when you correct yourself, the more likely I am to correct you again. And that is really key for creating a welcoming space because we all need correction. And the more correction is overblown, the less likely we are to give them again and the less likely we are to stay in that space and create that relationship. So on that point, Dr. Ayrton, the correction, is it something that when you are the person that wants the pronoun to be a certain pronoun, does it is it uncomfortable to make the correction? Does it become uncomfortable if a person is so, sort of not getting it? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, like in all things, that depends on someone's personality. So I'm a very extroverted person. I think this is why I've come into this different role in my well, pardon me, this role in my life of being an educator. But it can be uncomfortable to correct someone who misgenders me, and misgender is the term we use. Um, to refer to an instance when something like a wrong gendered term like ladies or gentlemen or sir or a wrong pronoun has been applied, it can be uncomfortable. And for some of us, it can actually be dangerous. So many transgender people on the transgender spectrum make a lot of decisions about whether we will correct people based on our perception of our personal safety. Mm. So if we feel as though letting someone know they're doing it wrong is going to put us in jeopardy in some way, we may not do that. Or if we feel like this person is going to launch into... Um, sort of a tirade or a large lecture or debate or an argument and we just don't have the energy to deal with that sometimes, then yeah, we might not correct that person on that day. So there's a whole kind of calculus that goes into whether we will do the work. And so that's why I I tweeted something a while ago that kind of got picked up and passed around the Twitter sphere a little bit, which is a tweet that said, if a trans person corrects you about our pronoun, it's actually a hopeful gesture. It's kind of a bit of a risk that we're taking. It's a gesture of trust, right? Like, I'm going to tell you something true about myself. How will you react? And it's not, first and foremost, a critical gesture necessarily, but it can actually be one of connection and opening up and hoping that this is going to be someone who can be in my life. So, I'm again, that's another one of the projects of the book to try to reframe this conversation. Is there um, perhaps a, a place that would be considered safe 
to to make that venture as as a person becomes aware that this I I know I need to do this for myself. Uh, how to venture forth? Do you mean for someone who for a trans person who yes. uses a gender neutral pronoun or exactly. whose pronoun is not apparent? Yes. Yeah. Well, yes, and I, I what I hope um, there are many ways that folks can make their willingness. Um, to do their best with our pronouns. There's many ways that people can make that visible to us. So yeah, places where that competence already exists, where people have a bit of exposure to trans people, a bit of practice with gender neutral pronouns, those are going to be places where it's going to go better. So in the, uh, in the book, I offer many different ways to do what I call signposting. And signposting is where you actually share your own pronoun. So Kate, I'm going to go out on a limb here and think your pronouns are likely she, her. Does that make sense? Yes. Right. So what you might do um, if you're running a meeting or an event is you might just say, hi, I'm Kate, and my pronouns are she, her, and leave it at that. And what that does is it causes people like me to kind of stick up our antenna and say, oh, this person is somebody who knows about pronouns, right? There's someone who has that knowledge that this is something that many of us do have to say about ourselves in this moment while this is still re-emerging into public life. So that's useful. Another thing you can do is you can actually put it in an email signature, and that is useful because then that's sort of a little message that travels around the Internet and, again, has that same effect as people saying, oh, okay, I can tell Kate about my pronouns. This is something that she is aware of. So that's a way to make the space around you a little bit safer for people to come to you at least and say, hey, you know what? This is my deal. Can you support me? That is incredibly wonderful. (laughs) You know, that we all will do this naturally, and it, it just is a part of life as we evolve. And it, and, and it will become a part of life. I mean, that's the thing. You can't, you can't stop language change. So in this case, the change that's most visible to people is using singular they for a new purpose. Because everyone says they are for one person if you don't know who they are. Like, oh, the, po- the, uh, the postal worker just dropped off the package, but I don't know where they dropped it. Mm-hmm. Right? That's singular they for one person you don't know. And the new thing for many people is to use that old tool for a new purpose, which is to refer to someone who you do know, but who is not a man or a woman, who is non-binary. So again, I guess a third shift the book is making is bringing that into public consciousness that this is not a new thing. This is an old thing being repurposed for a new, I guess, a new purpose. Yes. And one thing that I do find, but again, it could be something as we move forward, and we're still in this kind of uh, babyhood part of it, at least <laughs> I regard it that way, is I do see some people wearing like a, a type of name tag that will say mm-hmm. either my pronouns are or just say, put their name and put the pronouns right below the name. Oh, yes. And there's actually, in sort of more organized gatherings, there has been some movement towards creating space on name badges or to create additions to name badges um, that people can use. So if you're organizing an event or a conference, for example, um, often um, some organizers, uh, a classic example is the WISCON Feminist Science Fiction Conference, which was a kind of pioneer of this. They have an extra space or an extra tool that you can use to have your pronouns on your badge. There's also um, often at larger conferences, pronouns, um, pardon me, badges are created by an online system. 
So there's also the possibility for many conferences of having an extra entry, and then people can put their pronouns if they wish. No one should be compelled to do that, but if they wish, you can put your pronouns on there, and they will appear on your badge. In fact, I've, uh, I've figured out a couple of ways to hack different kinds of badges at these events. Um, by finding a field that will appear on the badge when it's printed and just putting my pronouns in there. So <laughs> that's something that I've, I and many other trans people have, have come up with. But yeah, there are many ways that um, this is already being done and it will continue to grow because you can't, you can't stop language changes of this kind. Um, even as they can be controversial, they are coming. And there's very little that can be done about that. I am not sorry to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, and isn't controversy part of of change? You're just yes. going to always get that kind of a push and pull. Oh, yeah. And uh, actually, in the book, I have two colleagues of mine, Lex Canelli and Bronwyn Bjorkman, and they are linguists. And one of the things that they taught me about, and there's all these little sidebars about linguist Q&A where they answer burning questions about, oh, wait a minute, is this grammatically correct? Or is this, what is this, blah, blah, blah. And um, one of the things that I learned from Lex in particular is that language changes happen above the level of consciousness or below the level of consciousness, but they are always happening. So language is always changing, but we usually only notice when language is changing, when we are conscious of it, because it is attached to some kind of social significance. So language changes that um, have something to do with location, where one is, or with social class, or with ethnicity, or with gender, those things, because they're related to different kinds of social categories, tend to be noticed and tend to be things that are perceived as controversial. But yet, language is always changing all the time. So the idea that English is this way and not that way um, is actually not accurate. And all of that on its own is utterly fascinating. And yeah. then we apply it here where it becomes, I think, even more significant because we're talking about a person, their personality, their mm-hmm. beingness, and to become more respectful of each other. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And I think something that I hope the world is starting to think about, or the, the world that I address in my book anyway, is starting to think about is how gender pronouns can and have been tools of hurting people for a very long time. And I'm not talking about transgender people. We often think, oh, I called you the wrong pronoun, that's bad, and that only applying to trans people. But it's really easy to think about instances when like a boy, you know, sort of a boy assigned male, a boy, like there's nothing trans about this boy. But this boy is being called she, her pronouns, in terms like girl, as a tool of harm, Mm -hmm. right, as a tool of bullying and peer harassment, because maybe he's not quite fitting in with the boys where he is. In that moment, we really do see how a non-trans person has a preferred pronoun, and that's not being used as a way to intentionally do them harm. So you don't have to think too hard before you realize how these little words can have a huge impact for all kinds of people, not only the ones that immediately spring to mind. Absolutely. Thank you. I think that that's such an important aspect for us to all understand, too, as we want to grow and be much more understanding and inclusive of each other. Indeed. So shifting just slightly, but something that you mentioned just a bit ago, Dr. Ayrton, what does being non-binary mean? Being non-binary, right on. So non-binary is a gender identity. So man and woman and boy and girl, those are also gender identities. But non-binary is a gender identity 
um, of people who are not within that binary of man or woman or boy or girl. So some non-binary people have a sense that we are part of both of those, and some of us have a sense that we're part of neither of those boxes. And in my case, the latter is true. So I am a non-binary person because man or woman are not categories that have ever fit properly for me. So that helps us to have a better understanding. And sure. and it's not anything new, is it? Because no. there will be people who say, well, well, don't think that way. Just just change it. But hasn't this been really the case since the beginning of yeah. time, probably? Oh, sure. Um, it's funny. In my book, I have a section where I talk about how I am not engaging with any kind of discussion of why people are trans or non-binary. And we often think of non-binary as under the trans umbrella of people who didn't follow the path that was set for them when they were born. So I talk about how I don't engage with why questions, but that's because we have no consensus on why some people are non-binary or trans. But we also know that for thousands of years across time and across cultures, there have been people whose experience of gender and their way of identifying a relation to gender has not been binary. It has not been man or woman. So there's a lot of evidence of that. And so I often try to remind people that we aren't seeing anything sort of new and thunderous. What we're actually seeing is a gradual re-emergence of ways of living gender that have been with us for a long, long time on the lands that we are on now that are now, that now have different names than they've had before. So it's not a newfangled thing. It's a re-emergence of something actually very old. So... When there has been, I I think it's been more recent, although it's not been this big news item, but talking about gender X, does that Hmm. um, help in terms of if we have to check off boxes or, you know, put that ID uh, identification on a driver's license or a passport? Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, there's a lot of wonderful initiatives that are happening to reflect accurately the diversity of gender on documents like different kinds of ID documents like passports and birth certificates um, changing those things and there's there's many ways that trans activists have gone about um, doing that work and sometimes um, it is with an eye to getting rid of gender designations on these documents for everybody and sometimes it is with an eye to adding another option so like you said gender X in certain jurisdictions, including in the Canadian, like when Canadians get our passports issued by the federal government, we do have the option of having an X on our passport. And there are many jurisdictions around the world where that's true. So there's kind of a big difference, though, between taking off gender off of everyone's passport and having an option that is an X. Because we know that the ways that gender is engaged across the world are very different. So a lot of us are thinking, oh, this is great. My identification document would actually accurately match who I am. However, if I have an X on my passport, when might I be at risk? Yes. Right. So when might I experience different kinds of prejudice or different kinds of harm? Um, and that could be the case anywhere in North America, right? Not only overseas. So it's kind of an open debate about the X. It's a It's a good sort of placeholder and a good step, but I don't think for most trans people, um, that is the end of the road because of this kind of risk of um, of disclosure. That they may choose to not have happen at any particular yeah. time. Right. Mm-hmm. So oh. It's promising and it's been a hard fight. And we're still kind of, we're still in a moment when our institutions, which are much newer than a lot of this gender diversity, when our much newer institutions are trying to catch up and do right by all these different ways the gender is lived. 
How long has it been that Canada has offered that on the passport? Oh, that's very recent. I believe it was. I believe it was last year, um, if not the year before. And that was as a result of a lot of activist work done by a non-binary person in Vancouver named Joshua Ferguson. And and so, as you have just stated, it it still is a process to figure out, you know, whether this is really the right path, a good path, uh, or mm-hmm. yeah, maybe not to have those identifications at all so that, again, we have more of what we're going to call like an even playing field. Of course. Um, not, just a, not just a solution that marks some people as way over here in terms of most people's understanding of gender. And in term, for your listeners, many of them, of course, will participate in sports or in workplaces or in other places where they are invited to give information about themselves on the grounds of gender in forms, right? So it's not just the government that asks this of us. It's HR departments when we fill out different kinds of forms. It's registering for different kinds of activities. Um, whenever people participate in a research study or survey, they're very often asked for these items. So another really exciting thing that I'm seeing is the invention of other ways to collect that data and a rethinking of what that data is for. I mean, what do you actually know about a sample of people if you've invited everyone to select one of those boxes? Like for some kinds of research or some surveys, that's very relevant to know that these people are men and these people are women. But for other kinds of research, that has no meaning at all. So increasingly, um, I'm noticing researchers become aware of the fact that having a simple male-female box or man-woman box, which are a little different, um, that is not sufficient. So an excellent emerging best practice, for example, is if there's research that is relevant to people who are women, right? The, it will say simply, are you a woman? Yes or no. And what that actually means to the person in question is entirely up to them. So there's all kinds of ways that survey research and other research is really catching up to the diversity of gender. Again, such important food for thought. I'll call it, that we mm-hmm. can find in this really excellent book, Gender, Your Guide. And I would think that it would be such a great resource uh, for a young person uh, for their own, perhaps, education, you know, to, to kind of glean some information. But if they are, regardless of where they might be in their awareness, to share with family, is that, would mm-hmm. you say this would be a great way to, to share with family and friends to get them to have a better understanding of self? Absolutely. In fact, um, the book has two parts, a large part and a tiny part. And the tiny part of the coda at the back of the book that's called To the Trans Person Whose Person is Reading This Book. And that is really the only part of the book that is directly addressed to a transgender or non-binary person. And it sort of talks a bit about who I am, why I wrote the book, and it offers some of the self-advocacy strategies that I've um, worked with many people to develop over the years. But the majority of the book's content is for um, people who are not transgender or non-binary. Right? It is for It is the book that... So many people, um, I've, I've heard this request, so what can I give my mom? What can I give my teacher? What can I give my boss? And this is the book. Right? This offers a very connective and accessible account of how gender works, how gender affects you, what transgender means, and what you can actually do with your language and your action to make your workplace, your family, your sports team, your mosque, your synagogue, your church, etc., to make those places more immediately welcoming in terms of how people relate to each other. 
for people who are not doing gender the way we might expect. So it is, it is the book for a teenager who's just trying to figure out their gender stuff to take and say, hey, mom and dad, here you go, right? It's the book for parents um, of a non-binary trans kid to say, you know what, teacher, here you go. <laughs> so that's exactly what the book is for. So I'm hoping that it sparks a lot of interesting conversations um, and useful practical conversations about supporting others, um, particularly this holiday season. Yes, perfect timing in that regard. Uh, to be able to be more informed, educated, supportive. And and that's the thing. Um, say you, the, your young person comes to you, whether as a teacher, whether as a parent, how... Um, I think I know how we need to react, uh, but uh, maybe we need to spell that out, how to receive that. Do you mean when you're, when you're a person working in a position of support or authority as a young person who comes out as, as transgender yes. to you? Yes. Well, um, first I think it's important to recognize that many school districts have policies and they have people who is part of their portfolio to offer support and guidance during um, during a time when in a school a young person would wanting to would be wanting to socially transition. So that includes usually things like changing name and pronoun and sometimes aspects of gender expression, which is sort of like clothing and um, and hair and things like that. So if you are working in sort of a formalized work environment and you receive that kind of disclosure from a young person. It's very unlikely that nobody has thought of that before, and no one has. It's very unlikely that there isn't a thing. So, ask around anonymously, protecting the confidentiality of that young person, and access what is already there. Have people already socially transitioned where you are? What kinds of resources are available? Yeah. So the first message there, and this is a very 2018 message because we've come so far already in many jurisdictions, is that you are not alone in trying to figure out what to do. So access what is around you. And that's really, that's really I think, I, all I can go into in the span of a radio interview. Sure. And it's just another reminder of how much work is being done and how much work has been done by trans people to have these kinds of policies in place and the laws that require them, which is fantastic. And I think it is noteworthy that there are certain pockets of the country, certain regions that are, are potentially more supportive and, and more oh, yeah. and are safer that way. Uh, but, you know, even there, it's important to just kind of be aware, and it's for all of us, you know, to want to be informed and aware and create oh, our, sure. a, a safe community. Absolutely. And what I say, um, what I say to people I know, um, students I have, people I interact with around these issues who maybe um, work in places in, in places that are not very accepting or supportive of gender or sexual diversity, um, or who are sort of trying to figure out what this all means to them, as I say to them, the minimum thing, if you are in a position of care and support over a young person in whatever capacity, the ethical minimum for you is to be able to greet that information and say, thank you for sharing that with me. This is not something that I know very much about, but I'm going to connect you right now to somebody who does. Or I'm going to connect you right now to a local organization. Or I'm going to connect you right now to an online resource where you can actually speak to a real person. So if you aren't sure um, what to do if a child does offer you that kind of information about themselves or a teen is coming out to you and saying, this is what I actually think, this is who I am, 
the minimum for you is to greet that information um, graciously and warmly and then to send them actually to a place where someone else can pick up from you. So that, to my mind, is the ethical minimum. Like, it's kind of like if you can envision you are holding one hand of that person and who is going to hold the other hand. And once they have that other connection, then you can proceed in (laughs) the rest of your day, the rest of your work life, maybe knowing that this is something you have to learn more about as long as that person has had some other connection to support them, then that is the ethical minimum and a good thing to do. That's beautiful. I think so succinctly put. And to get the broader story, the broader information, I think the resource is your book. The best way to access that, Dr. Ayrton? The best way is to go to genderyourguide.com. And on that website, you can read um, different things that people said about the book. You can find links to order it from major online retailers. I know a lot of people have ordered it into their local bookstore, which is a wonderful option. And you can also download what I've called some starting place discussion guides. So those are for a group of teachers, for a group of people who work together in a workplace, whether that's an office or a customer service environment. And those ask you a lot of different questions and lead you to particular places in the book that are relevant for that context. So they're really kind of a very constructive book group guide for people who work together in a particular place. There's also one there for writers, so a group of people who write to get together and think about, oh, like, what are the implications of this book for people who write? And there's one to guide any group of folks together in pronoun practice, because there's a lot of practical stuff in the book. And with one of these discussion guides, you can actually run a workshop on your own. And if you do that, I'd love to hear how it went. And you can find me on Twitter at at Lee Ayrton. Perfect. Well, this has been most illuminating and important conversation. And I so greatly appreciate you, Dr. Lee Ayrton, for spending this time with us, but more greatly doing the work you're doing and providing this book. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.